Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 40, Sitting Out Civil War. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon House of Lords, which has been joined by the Earl of Leamington, Alexander Price, the Earl of Uxbridge, Tyler Simpson, the Earl of Rockingham, Jesse Holtzizer, and Fernando, Viscount Campos. Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last week, we saw the rise and fall of the Marquis of Montrose, who had entered Scotland with just two companions, and after a year of campaigning, destroyed every army he came up against, even if he was outnumbered two to one. After his sixth great victory at the Battle of Kilsyth, he was the most powerful man in Scotland, and the Covenanter government was either cowering in Edinburgh or had fled across the border to seek aid in England. Montrose was master of Scotland, and then his army dissolved around him. He'd managed to keep his coalition together this long, which was itself a show of his talents as a diplomat as much as his battles marked his ability as a commander, but in the space of just a few short weeks, Alistair McCullough led his Irish and Islanders back into the Highlands, and Viscount Boyne returned north to the Gordon Lands. Montrose was forced to give up what he'd won, and he attempted to join Charles I in England. But en route, a covenant of force caught him and wiped out what was left of his army. Today, we return back across the Atlantic Ocean, where the English colonies had been watching in horror as the political crisis back home escalated. First, Charles's subjects in Scotland, and then in Ireland, and finally in England itself, took up arms for and against him. A quick refresher is in order, since we haven't looked at the English colonies since season one. In 1640, England's colonial Atlantic Empire spanned 24 settlements consisting of, in total, around 50,000 people. Most of these colonists had been born in England. However, the older colonies were home to a generation born in the New World, 
while there were minority populations drawn from the other nations ruled by the Stuart kings. On paper, English territorial claims stretched from the Caribbean to Newfoundland. These English colonies had been settled over the previous 30 years, and by this point the most populous was Massachusetts, followed closely by Barbados and then Virginia, with the others coming in between a few hundred and a few thousand settlers by 1640. Each of the colonies was part of an interdependent network, exchanging not just goods and supplies, but ideas, religion and people. These colonies were also deeply connected to England, politically, ideologically and economically. Politically, the colonies were usually administered by an England-based charter company, or were the personal assets of an England-based proprietor. For example, the proprietor of the Maryland colony was Cecil Calvert, the second Lord Baltimore, while the Earls of Warwick and Carlisle both held significant proprietary rights over many of the other colonies. These proprietors received their grants from the king, who himself administered the Crown Colony of Virginia. Outside of these groups, there were a number of New England colonies which had no official permission to exist from England. The independent colonies of Providence, New Hampshire, New Haven, and Long Island. These colonies backed up their existence with agreements with natives and other colonies, but their positions were far from secure. For example, the founder of the Providence colony, Roger Williams, would sail back to England to seek official protection for his colony from Parliament in order to stave off annexation by the larger Massachusetts colony. We've seen Williams before, and he will make waves in Old England, just as he did in New England, but that's a tale for another episode. In religious matters, the colonies were meant to conform to Church of England practices, but they rarely did so. Much of New England, for example, was ideologically opposed to the reforms of the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Lord. Nearly 90 English ministers, deposed by Lord and the Court of High Commission, migrated to the New England area during the 1630s, and found eager flocks. As Carla Pastana puts it in Protestant Empire, Religion and the Making of the British Atlantic World, Congregationalism in New England was more rapidly and completely organised than other ecclesiastical systems elsewhere, such as the Church of England in Virginia or Barbados. It represented an alternative orthodoxy, a fact New Englanders were loath to admit, while King Charles remained secure on his throne. For most other plantations, the distance from authority and the precarious situation meant that religious conformity was hardly a priority. Many services read from the Book of Common Prayer, but had few of the other trappings of Anglican worship. The communion plate, minister vestments, and at the height of Lordian influence, altar rails, were extravagant investments for communities which had very serious everyday concerns. Orthodoxy with the state church wasn't helped by the fact that, as in so many other matters, it was taken for granted that colonial church affairs could and would be handled by authorities in England, not on the ground. For example, though Charles did agree to appoint a bishop to New England, this was never carried out. A bishop, based in the colonies, would be a very visible part of the church hierarchy, and would have gone a long way in creating an episcopal system in England's Atlantic world. As it was, even for colonial governments who favoured conformist practice, such as Virginia, they were working at a disadvantage. Whether they reported and paid taxes to the king, to a noble proprietor, or to a company, 
the colonies were far from subservient. Colonists could, and did, object to the governors imposed from above, and by 1640, more than half had established their own legislative bodies, with even Charles accepting the existence of the Virginian House of Burgesses in the Crown Colony. There wasn't universal success in this, however, and Newfoundland and Maine, among others, were prevented from forming their own legislatures by particularly strong English authorities. However, whichever colony they were in, almost all colonists had been born in England, lived under English law, tried to recreate English institutions, and considered themselves subjects of Charles, whether they agreed with his policies or not. News from England was eagerly dispersed throughout the colonies, whether it arrived by letter or by settler, especially after war erupted back home. Once fighting began in England, both King and Parliament expected the colonies to pick a side, and they each demanded that the side be theirs. Both King and Parliament would be disappointed. Let's look at these expectations first. Pretty much everyone, whether they were Parliamentarian or Royalist or something in between, expected the colonies of New England to back Parliament. The region was viewed, with some justification, as a hotbed of exactly the same type of royal critic as those who were now leading Parliament in their war against the King. They were friends and family, they were from the same communities, the same congregations. For some, like Oliver Cromwell, the decision to migrate or stay had been on a knife edge. The only difference between them was the massive ocean which separated them. They had clearly fled Charles's tyranny, and so would jump at the chance to support Parliament's struggle against him. In fact, many of the King's critics had long believed that the vast majority of colonists, and not just those in New England, had left because they opposed the King and his policies. To put it simply, this was not the case. As we saw throughout Season 1, there were any number of motivations for someone to migrate to the New World. Political and religious dissent was absolutely one of them, especially for colonies like Massachusetts Bay and Plymouth, but there were plenty of more ordinary reasons for some to seek a new life, or just to work a temporary period, in the colonies. Now obviously Charles didn't think that England's Atlantic world was full of potential rebels, but he did at least consider New England to be a lost cause. It was no secret that the region was full of people who shared many religious and political ideals with his parliamentary enemies. On the opposite side of the spectrum, both sides expected Virginia would be royalist, as befitted a crown colony. For almost all the other colonies, both sides believed that they would respond to the orders of their England-based company or proprietor. So how were these expectations disappointed? Well, first off, none of the colonies were at all interested in risking their very existence to join the fight. They had opinions and sympathies with one side or another, of course, and the leadership of some colonies was explicit in their words of support for either the King or Parliament. But that was more or less the extent of official colonial contribution to the First and Second Civil Wars. Words, and words are wind. Virginia and most of New England did declare their expected allegiance, as did other colonies, but that was about it. Colonial governments did their very best to make themselves seem small and hard to notice as the big kids fought in Europe, because you have to be realistic about these things. Even the largest colonies, Virginia and Massachusetts, were relatively vulnerable 
and vulnerable from almost every direction. None would be able to stand up to a concerted attack from whichever side was victorious, and being too actively engaged in the fighting not only weakened a colony's defences and risked retaliation, but opened them up to attack from colonies on the opposing side, their native neighbours, and other European outposts. Massachusetts Bay, Plymouth, New Haven, and Connecticut formed an Allied confederation explicitly based on fear of attack from other Europeans and Indians. Quote, by reason of those sad distractions in England which they have heard of, and by which they know we are hindered, from that humble way of seeking advice, or reaping those comfortable fruit of protection which at other times we might well expect. In other words, the potential enemies of the English colonies knew that no help would be coming from England. When Lord Baltimore, proprietor of Maryland, took a privateering commission, his own colonial government opposed him. They were understandably concerned that he was going to sink the ships that were coming to buy their goods and sell them supplies. For the same reason, Massachusetts requested that both sides consider Boston Harbour neutral ground. Trading was much harder when the merchants are shooting at each other. All of the colonies suffered the same divisions between royalism and parliamentarianism that England faced. In Plymouth Colony, a settler challenged the governor to explain why he was not following the king's orders. In Massachusetts, a ship's captain questioned whether Parliament was committing treason. Another challenged a warrant, because it had been issued in the king's name, but not by king and Parliament. In Virginia, wild rumours spread that the parliamentarian minority had informed the Powhatan of the Civil War and urged them to attack the Crown Colony while England was distracted. More on that next time. In St. Kitts, a colonist refused to drink a toast to Lieutenant General Thomas Warner. If you remember, and it was a while ago, so I don't blame you if you don't, Warner had been governing St. Kitts, as well as on paper, the colonies of Montserrat, Antigua, and Barbados for years at this point, but his leadership was not uncontroversial. So in July 1642, we find this colonist refusing to recognise him as Lieutenant General, because he knew, quote, no general but the Earl of Essex. Civil unrest was just as dangerous to a colony's survival as outside intervention. In the First and Second Civil Wars, regardless of a colony's official position, colonial governments were just as likely to crack down, not on those agreeing with the wrong politics, but on those being too zealous one way or another and disturbing the peace. The widespread neutrality of the colonial governments wasn't down to disinterest, but self-preservation. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, 
Join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now, and can you guess the twist? The largest colony, Massachusetts, is especially interesting. Despite the majority support of the population and the leadership for Parliament's struggle, Massachusetts had to contend with its own sordid past. Its very generous colonial charter, the pride and joy of the independently-minded New Englanders, had been granted by the king. Aside from the other dangers that could arise from actively opposing Charles, if the king were to win he could revoke that charter very easily. He'd already threatened the colony with this in the previous decade, after all. As the king lost ground throughout the 1640s and a royal victory became more and more unlikely, you might expect Massachusetts to become more active in support of Parliament. Well, now Parliament became the greatest threat to their charter, because it had been granted by the king and everything else he'd done was on the chopping block. Parliament might decide to reform it, and they were unlikely to grant the same privileges as before. In a 1649 almanac published in Massachusetts, the author straight up lies and says that the charter had been granted by Parliament in the spring of 1629. Parliament hadn't been in session in spring 1629, but the truth didn't matter. Shoring up the legitimacy of their precious charter when everything else was in flux was the priority and in this they were successful. As you would expect, colonial governments had to consider their responsibilities to their communities, and as we've covered, they were all trying to navigate shark-infested waters. They had political, economic, and religious pressures to keep under control. Even for the more established colonies like Virginia and Massachusetts, the threat of widespread death or disaster by famine, disease, or war was never far away. But this is all the official position. Despite what their governments may have wanted, individual settlers were quite willing to put their money where their mouth was. A Parliament-supporting captain sailed from Virginia with the intention to capture Royalist shipping. Vessels from the New England colonies were attacked by Royalist ships on the assumption of their loyalty to Parliament. In Massachusetts, John Winthrop, back in the governor's seat since 1642, had to deal with an exodus of New Englanders returning to Old England. I mentioned earlier in the episode that about 90 church ministers migrated to Massachusetts in the face of Laudian pressure. With Lord deposed, and a godly parliament fighting the king for the true religion, one in three of these ministers would return home. Of the 70 of those 90 who would live to 1640, 25 would leave the colony, 
with 12 of them leaving between 1640 and 1643. Out of 109 Harvard graduates over the next decade or so, 43 went back to England, and many more left before completing their studies. Of the first graduating class in 1642, seven of the nine would return to England. These are just the more easily discoverable numbers. Susan Hardman Moore estimates a minimum of 1,500 colonists, men, women, and some children, leaving Massachusetts for England during this period. There are accounts of those colonists who stayed behind, watching their neighbours' abandoned properties disintegrate from neglect. The price for property crashed as the market flooded, and for some it was simpler to just up and leave. Many of the first to leave did so because their initial reason for emigrating, be it financial, legal, or political, was now gone. For those emigres who had fled royal warrants, or been sanctioned by the Court of High Commission or Star Chamber, now they found their way home clear. Property and assets which had been seized or otherwise tied up in legal proceedings with Charles's authorities were now freed up and could, hopefully, be recovered. Legal battles could be restarted, names cleared, reputations restored. Many had migrated to seek a better life. If that better life had not appeared, why bother staying? Some had left England seeking a more tolerant attitude to their beliefs. But in New England, only certain beliefs were tolerated. Massachusetts had, as we well know, struggled with schism and religious controversy for almost its entire short history. Baptists, Anabaptists, Antinomians, Episcopalians were not welcome. If you were too radical or too conservative, you might be looking longingly at the next ship bound for London. When Parliament and the Westminster Assembly of Divines began to consider the future of the Church of England, these American theologians would make their own contributions. For those colonists who couldn't or didn't want to leave the colony yet, letters of attorney were drafted to give those who were sailing home the authority to act on their behalf, either to tie up loose ends for their new life in America, or to prepare the ground for their return. Some New Englanders went home to fight in the war, either militarily or, for ministers, in the spiritual theatre. Many members of the Massachusetts Artillery Company were among those returning home, beginning with those eager to take advantage of Parliament's Adventurers Act to fight in Ireland. The Royalist victories of 1643 spurred Israel Stoughton to lead a party back to England to join the Earl of Manchester's Eastern Association Army. Just to highlight the deep ties between New England and Parliament, the commander of his regiment in the Eastern Association Army was Thomas Rainborough, who was deeply connected to New England. Many of his men were from New England, his brother lived there, and he was connected twice by marriage to Winthrop himself. One of his sisters was Winthrop's wife, another sister was married to Winthrop's son, which must have been an interesting family dynamic. One sister was the other sister's mother-in-law. Early in 1645, many of these New Englanders returned to America, but with the formation of the new model army, many of them returned once again to fight, including Winthrop's son, who joined the regiment of his brother-in-law. Aside from officers, Parliament's army also benefited from New Englander surgeons and chaplains. Many of those departing ministers would travel with the parliamentary forces to preach, while a 14-year veteran of colonial surgery would sail to England with his apprentice in 1644. One particularly notable example of the mix of agendas and political views in and between the colonies 
is the case of Richard Ingle. Ingle was the captain of the ship Reformation when it docked in Virginia in the summer of 1643. After a conversation with a Virginian over events in England turned into an argument, which then devolved into insults, Ingle grabbed a sword. A justice of the peace, who apparently had been watching the dispute, accused Ingle of planning to use the sword on his opponent and ordered his arrest in the name of the king. At this point, Ingle said that if he'd made the order in the name of both king and parliament, he would have surrendered. But as it was, he tried to stab him. The JP fled, and Ingle sailed away, with the Virginians who hadn't been quick enough to disembark still on board. He sailed to Maryland, where he allowed his unexpected hostages to leave, and boasted to the Marylanders of his actions to the south. His hostages corroborated his account, and so he was arrested, because he'd tried to stab a JP. The acting governor, Giles Brent, tried to get the Reformation's crew to swear allegiance to Charles, and offered them double pay to sail to Bristol and join the king, but he had no takers. At this point, Ingle escaped with the help of two Marylanders, and while he was at large, three different juries struck down six separate charges against him. When Ingle finally left the colony, he sailed away with one of the Marylanders that had helped him escape, only to rob him and leave him behind. Ingle would return to Maryland in February 1643, with letters of mark, granted by Parliament, which he deliberately misinterpreted to give him permission to attack the colony itself. Ingle's attack sparked revolts by Protestant Marylanders against the Catholic leadership, while Ingle made away with several Jesuit prisoners. All of this was despite the fact that Lord Baltimore aligned himself with Parliament, and despite the aid that had been shown to Ingle by the colonists. Maryland's Catholicism unavoidably connected the colony to the Crown and meant suspicion from both Parliament and their neighbouring Protestant colonies. Next time, we'll return to Virginia as the Third Anglo-Poetan War breaks out. Thank you to my entire House of Lords, including Frederick, a favourite of the King, Sue Bremner, Duchess of Wellington, Alan Goldstein, Marquess of Southampton, and John Kruger, Earl of Surrey. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed, which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. Thank you to everyone who has supported me on Patreon or donated through PayPal, left a review, or told a friend about the podcast. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. <laughs>